Well, good morning. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it for our time here together. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is where we're going to be, right in the middle of the Bible, in the poetic section, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are where we've been. We have been in a study of this book here for the past couple weeks, and uh, we hit a section here today that is not an easy section. Uh, it, is, it is really complex. And one of the things I want to highlight right at the beginning of our study of the book of Ecclesiastes is how disciplined Solomon is with examining life under the sun. This began our observation of this book. Uh, Solomon refuses to examine life from any other perspective than that which you can observe with your five senses. And he uses this phrase of under heaven or under the sun as sort of his uh, philosophical boundaries by which he is going to examine life. And last week, we looked at Solomon's searching, and we looked at his search for meaning uh, in the ways that he pursued pleasure, the ways that he pursued his educational pursuits, the way he built and became a boss and was a, uh, a, a uh, what do you call it, architect, and had a lot of building. And then he came face to face with the reality that one day he's going to die, and everything that he has gained in his life under the sun is going to be given away. And he has no control in the face of death. So Solomon's counsel to us uh, last week was that we ought to enjoy life as a gift from God. That we should acknowledge the uh, life that God has given us and give thanks for the fact that we have a God who is in charge and who gives us these moments to enjoy. Amen? We talked about steak. Remember steak? Did anybody eat steak this week? See, you obeyed your pastor. Way to go. Way to go. The rest of you, get a steak. Today, live, up, live it up. Enjoy your life. So that was last week. Uh, Solomon went inward last week. He began to examine his own ambitions for where he could find meaning in life under the sun. Well, today what he's going to do is turn his reflection from an individual pursuit and he's going to look out at humanity and begin to describe for us life under the sun. What kind of life is it out there? And we titled this message Seasons, because just like chapter one, chapter one, if you look, are you in Ecclesiastes three? Are you there? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter one real quick. You see how the book, flip one page back, you see how the book begins with poetry? And then it's prose, which means it's the, the text changes in your Bible, which means it's sort of a song or a poetic section that talked about life under the sun, the created order that God has put in place. And then Solomon explains it with prose. Well, the same thing happens in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You see ch chapter 3, verse 1 there? The text changes. You have a poetic section that Solomon is going to describe for us all of the seasons under the sun, and then he's going to explain this poem with his reflections. Now, I am getting into my mid-40s. He's like, no, Steve, you're 28. And thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and right now, at about this stage of my life, I am beginning to look back and to see seasons. Now, if you're 25, you may look back in your life and think about the past 20 years and go, my seasons since I was five, I can't really see. It's hard for me to understand seasons. But the older you get, the more you recognize that as you look back on your life, you start to see the, God's hand. You start to see certain seasons begin, certain seasons end. I said to my wife, after about 10 years, we've been married 12 years, we've been married 13 years this year. 
that I, I have begun to see in my marriage and in my family that there are, coming, uh, there are seasons that are coming to a close. And it's the first time really in our marriage where we weren't looking forward, we began to look back. You with me? People who are older than 40, amen? Right? You begin to see that there are certain seasons that begin and certain seasons that end. And that's what Solomon's going to talk about here today. But in the midst of seasons, Solomon is going to show for us two very, very big philosophical questions. In fact, these two big philosophical ideas in the context of what he's going to say today are the, the ways that you navigate life almost subconsciously. No matter who you are, what stage of life, how old you are, how young you are, how rich, how poor, how educated, how uneducated you are, you and I have an impulse in our chest. We have a subjective experience that seeks in us to make sense of two big ideas. And that's what Solomon is going to show us here today. The first one is that you and I live our lives subjectively, unconsciously, subconsciously, believing that we are on a search for meaning. We want our lives to count. Amen? That you have a desire, a beating heart within you that consistently as you come to the varied seasons in life, you desire for those seasons to matter. Now the second one, which is why this chapter is so strange, the second one is you and I have an impulse and a desire for God to set things right. That when we see and experience and hear injustice, there's something inside of us that revolts against the injustice that we see. So those two enormous ideas are going to be handled in 20 verses by Solomon. And he's going to examine those two philosophical assumptions, the search for meaning and purpose and the search for justice and righteousness. And he's going to put them right together in this, this poem about life under the sun. You with me so far? This is, this is tough sledding here today to use a reference that works in the Northeast, not here. Don't worry about it. Let's pray and ask God for his grace. Father, we come to you as humble and dependent and finite creatures seeking wisdom that is beyond the sun for our lives here this morning. For these few minutes as we gather here together and we look into your word, would you give light to your eyes? The Psalms say that the unfolding of your words gives light. So, Father, I pray for great discernment. I pray for great insight. I pray for a passionate heart to do your will. I pray for those who come in and are discouraged and uncertain about your love for them in the person and work of Christ, and that today they might take their first step into a relationship with you, that they might see things in your word here today that they've never seen before, that those of us who know you and love you might find great comfort and assurance and exhortation by the words that we read here from Solomon. Father, we long for a voice beyond the sun to give meaning to our lives, to give us an anchor by which we navigate the varied seasons of our lives. And we give thanks that you have given that to us in your word. 
So encourage us, bless us as we study here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's take a look here and jump in. We're going to do a whole chapter here together. Chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, uh, in the New Testament, the New Testament writers use two different words for time. One is chronos, which means just a succession of events. It was 12 o'clock, then it's 2 o'clock, then it's 4 o'clock. That's chronos. The New Testament writers also use the term called kairos, which has to do with seasons. Remember when Jesus goes to the fig tree before he goes into Jerusalem and he finds no figs on it because it wasn't the kairos for figs. It wasn't the season. It wasn't the, the, uh, the appropriate time for harvesting. Well, when you get into the Old Testament here, you have a picture of Solomon talking about uh, specific, they're not so much chronological times, but they're specific moments in time. And what you see before you is a poem that's made up of 14 lines, seven different couplets that's going to show you the varied experiences of life under heaven. And this poem has no sense of morality to it. You'll get morality later on in this text, in this passage. But when you look at this poem, it's descriptive more than prescriptive. And as we go through it and as we read it, it's not a punch list as if you read it and you say, well, I'd like a little more uh, uh, life in my life and a little less death. I'd like a little more planting and less uprooting. And it's like a scantron. Remember scantron? They still use scantrons? Anybody know? They do. They do. Thank you. They still use scantrons. I don't know why. They still do. Who doesn't know what a scantron is? Donna, it's okay. We'll get on, we'll get on that later. That's important. It has nothing to do with your sanctification. Don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, so when you look at this poem, you aren't meant to derive morality from it. It's purely descriptive. Okay? And it's pretty easy to understand because Solomon, in using... Uh, seven couplets is going to give you a picture of everything that can possibly happen in life under heaven. It's not, it doesn't mean it's descriptive of every single individual's experience. It's going to be descriptive of mankind's experience. Look at what it says. Verse 2. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, as such that there's, uh, for mankind, and it seems for plants, that no one has control over the day of their birth or the day of their death. There's a recognition right at the beginning. Remember chapter two that we looked at last week, that Solomon recognized that death comes for us all, and death takes everything, and there's nothing that Solomon can do about it, and he recognizes that here. There's a time to be born and a time to die. That's how he began the book, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth endures forever. Verse 3, there's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away, yes, dance, Baptist. You see that? I don't want to skip that, right? I can't skip that. There's a time to dance, which means there's a changing in our emotional lives, isn't there? That we could pull, I'll just finish, let's finish. Now, I, I couldn't skip that. That was too important for me. Verse five, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep 
and a time to cast away. You ever, you have, anybody, if you have kids, you ever have a kid lose something so precious to them that their whole life depends upon finding that thing, that item, that object, that stuffed animal, that Lego, that whatever it is, and you have to have that conversation where you recognize that it went in the gutter, it's in the storm drain, it's never coming back. It's a time to lose. Ever have, that, have to have that conversation? We've done that. There's a time to seek, there's a time to lose. Look at verse seven, time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. Now, this one, a time for war and a time for peace, takes this idea of war and peace and love and hate and moves it from personal love and hate to corporate, time for peace and time for war. You see that? So in summing up all of what Solomon has said up to this point, we could do this in our, in our congregation. I'm not going to do it right now. But we could take a minute and go through each of these things. And you would recognize that there are people who have in their life right now a time of dancing and a time of excitement. A time of joy. And simultaneously, there are times of mourning and there are times of difficulty. There are times of cold silence in relationships. There are times of warm embracing in relationships. There are times where relationships are mended. There are times where relationships are breaking. There are times of great success. There are times of great failure. And we could go, just in the group of people we have in this room, if you were just to go through that Scantron, right, of are you A or are you B? Are you A, are you B? You would have a diversity represented in this room, right? That that's part of life. All of us come into Sunday morning or hit Monday morning in our families, in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our parenting, in our love and care for parents, in our love and care for children where seasons come upon us. Now, Solomon is about to ask a question that he's asked before and already given an answer to, only he's doing it in response to what he has just said in this poem. Look at verse nine. What gain has the worker from his toil? Now we've answered that in Ecclesiastes one and chapter two. What's the answer? Say none. None. There's no gain. But why does Solomon ask it on the tail end of this kind of poem? See, last week, Solomon examined his pursuit and search for meaning individually, right? And he pushed out his philosophical searchings into all the things he wanted to do. And we said one of the realities of finding our meaning in fulfilling our desires is that death confronts them, right? No matter how much you want to, one day death is coming for you. And death will ultimately take away all control that you have in your life. Now Solomon is going to turn this question of gain and look at circumstances. 
We thought last week that we could find meaning and fulfillment through our desires, through achieving the things that we wanted to achieve, but we found out that life is crooked, life is broken, life doesn't work the way we want it to. And here, what Solomon is saying is there is no gain under, sun, under the sun, not particularly because of death, though death is a part of this poem, but there's no gain under the sun because you really aren't in control of the circumstances the way you think you are. Who had something in the last six months that wasn't planned? Go ahead, raise your hand. The rest, oh, the rest of you, your life was exactly the way you planned it, huh? Man, come see me later. You can give me some counsel. Right, this happens to us all the time. You wake up on Monday morning and something happens you don't expect. Some relationship goes sideways that you don't expect. Some thing at work happens and you don't expect. You get surprised by life because all of us, no matter who we are, we have a pretty high self-confidence in our ability to make life work for us, right? Let's be honest together. And when circumstances change, we get bothered because we thought we were putting in two and two and two and two and we're supposed to get eight and we get three and a half. And we go, wait a minute, I thought I was a lot stronger at making life work the way I wanted it to. And Solomon says, look at the changing seasons of life. Not the things that are hardwired into creation with the sun and the wind and the water cycle and all those things. Just look at circumstances and recognize that you don't have as much control as you think you do. Circumstances change like that. And where we find ourselves, more often than not, is responding to circumstances rather than controlling the circumstances. Have you found that about life? That's Solomon's point. Life is variable and uncertain. It's not easily discernible. Now that brings me to two really big observations about seasons. Before we move on, let me give you two kind of really important things for you to think about when you look at the varied seasons. Life is tougher when you are unable to discern the season that you are in. I say this, boy, from personal experience, and I guarantee you could go around this room with people who have spoken when they should have been silent, right? When people who thought that they ought to embrace rather than refrain from embracing, from people who thought they ought to be building when really they ought to be scattering. That life for us is loaded in that way. And that life is tougher for us when we fail to discern the fact that the seasons of our lives and the circumstances of our lives are not fundamentally meant to be controlled but meant to be responded to appropriately. That's what it means to be wise. Do you see in all of these things, it's not there's a good time and there's a bad time. There's just times. There's varied times. There's different times. And the task for any of us is to discern the times wisely and respond appropriately with what is happening. I have failed to do this and built into my life a kind of bitterness and frustration because I failed to discern the appropriate times for things that were happening in my life. And I can tell you from personal experience, if you fail to discern the times that are happening in your life, you will get frustrated and bitter because that was me. 
and I recognized that I had too much faith in my ability to control the scenarios and the situations and the circumstances where I was being called rather to reflect and observe and discern what was happening in these situations in my life and then respond appropriately. You with me so far? That's one. Number two, seasons affect everything. This is the danger of not only failing to recognize this, and this is easy for some of us. For some of us, we, are, uh, we believe in seasons, and we can easily let go and transition and be mobile and flexible with the way life is going in a lot of areas, except for two or three that are really, really important to us and that we really believe we have lots of control and influence and strength to make it happen the way we want them to. You with me? That there are little areas of our lives where we go, no, I'd like a lot more control over my relationships. Yeah, I can take the loss of the job or the change in the seasons or the whatever, but this is the thing that's really, really important to me that I don't want to be affected by the changing circumstances of my lives. And when you do that, you get even more angry and bitter. Because so many of us, me included, want certainty from God. We want reliability from God. And we define that in our circumstances, not in the character of God. I must say that again. We define certainty and clarity and confidence from God in our circumstances rather than in the nature and the character of God. You with me? So here's Solomon recognizing these seasons change. They affect everything. And it's good for us to recognize that life is full of seasons. Life is full of circumstances that are different from day to day, year to year, sometimes hour to hour. Now, look at verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Well, that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? That you look at the varied seasons of life and we have this instinctive drive, this instinctive desire to determine whether or not this is a good season or a bad season. And Solomon says that's the wrong question. We have a book that we've read to multiple of my kids. It's a book about a, uh, a boy who uh, goes to the zoo with his parents and he gets a balloon and the book goes, that's good, he got a balloon. And then the balloon lifts him up and takes him away from his parents and it goes, oh no, it's bad. And then the balloon takes him over a jungle and the balloon pops and they go, oh good, he doesn't have to deal with that balloon thing but now he's in a jungle and he's all alone, that's bad. Oh no, it's good because he gets picked up by a goose and then he, it's a kid's book, right? And it goes back and forth like that. And it's meant to show you the variability of life. How we go, oh, I got a flat, that's bad. Oh, I got a raise, that's good. God must be happy with me. Oh, I don't feel close to God, that must be bad. Oh, I got a hug, that's good. So I got built up in my career, that's good. I lost a lot of money this year in my career and I'm gonna have to pay back the government and taxes, that's bad. Right, we all have this instinctual response woven into us to evaluate our life based upon how things are going for us. And what Solomon says here in verse 10 is, I've seen the business that God has given. Remember, that's how we, what we said in uh, chapter one. It's an unhappy business that God has given. And the point here is not that God, has, uh, God is arbitrary. 
The point is that God is that God is a designer. And that God has given us life that works according to his rules and his purposes and not ours. Isn't that frustrating? Don't you hate that, that you're not in charge? That's a joke. You should be laughing uproariously. But it's too personal, right? Because you really love being in charge. And I love being in charge. I don't like that God's in charge. I want to be in charge. And Solomon says, I've seen the business God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. That word beautiful is used to refer to beautiful women in the Old Testament. It's used to refer to beautiful men. In the uh, vision that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar, it's used to refer to beautiful cows. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's used only one other time. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Flip one page forward and look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. 5.18, behold, what I have seen to be good and, literally this word, beautiful. Here, though, it's fitting. It's appropriate. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the suns the few days of his life that God has given him, for that is his lot. Now turn back to flip, to, uh, flip back to chapter 3. God has made the seasons beautiful in its time. Which means God has a design for every season of our lives. God has a design for every single thing that happens during the course of all of created order for all time. From every single point in time, from in the beginning to they will reign with him forever and ever at the end of your Bible. God has a purpose and a design behind every single season. You believe that? See? Amen. Now watch what he says next. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Uh, when you read in the Old Testament the everlasting God, it's El Olam, O-L-A-M. It's the eternal one, the everlasting one. It refers to things that God has done in the past and things that God will do in the future, that he will reign forever and forever. He will reign olam. And in the midst of us living in a season and time in all of our lives, no matter who you are at any season of life that you are in right now, God is saying that he has put into our hearts in the midst of the variability of circumstances of life, he has put the everlasting, the eternal into our very hearts for a very particular reason. Now Solomon, philosophically, is showing us something about the human experience. And he's demanding that you deal with this reality that God has put into your heart. And he says, you are insufficient to deal with this reality, this longing in your heart for meaning. This longing in your heart to make sense of what God has done from the beginning and to the end for the 75 to 85 years that he's given you on this planet. And he's put eternity in your hearts to create in you a longing to make sense of your life and to make sense of these seasons. This is not arbitrary. God doesn't do it to frustrate us. 
He does it in such a way that we might unchain our heart from the up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down of circumstances. The longing inside of us is to make sense of our lives from beginning to end. Now watch what he says. He's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Isn't that frustrating? That there are certain answers to the circumstances and seasons of your life that you won't get. There are certain seasons of your life that you don't understand. What Everybody have seasons in your life that you didn't understand what God was doing. Because right your hand, this is the raise your hand portion of the sermon. You got those? Man, I got those. That God, that season didn't make sense to me. God, I don't know exactly what you were doing at that point in my life. God, I don't understand. I know you were doing something, and I know it moved me on to the next season, but that season really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. God goes, I know. You can't figure out my plan because you're not me. You're finite. I am infinite. You are creature. I am creator. I was from the beginning. You were not. And I will be into the forever and ever. You're here for just a moment. Verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. What an interesting, isn't that an interesting response? Solomon just said that God doesn't owe you an explanation and isn't going to give you one. Welcome to church. Don't you have that? I have that in me. Man, that's annoying. Isn't that annoying that God's in charge? It's annoying that he doesn't give me the reasons for why he does what he does. It's annoying to me that God doesn't give me an explanation for the seasons that make no sense to me. And Solomon says mankind can't figure it out. You can't use your five senses, your eyes, touch, feeling, touch, all that kind of stuff. You can't use it to figure out what God has been doing from the beginning to the end. You can't do it. So I perceive there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to, interesting, this is the first time he mentions a moral aspect to our life under the sun. To be joyful and to what? Do good. I don't have to understand what God is doing from season to season and moment to moment and time to time in my life. But I do need to understand my duty. I do need to understand that I am called to do good even when I don't understand what is happening in my life. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph begins and he has this word from God. All my brothers are gonna bow down to me. All my mom and dad, they're gonna bow down to me too. And he's the favorite son. And he goes out with the brothers. And the brothers go, look at this dreamer. Look at this guy. He's got the fancy coat. And dad loves him the best. I know what we'll do. Let's kill him. No, let's not kill him. There's no money in killing him. What we should do is we should sell him. Look, here's some, here comes a band of Ishmaelite raiders. Let's sell him and take the money and lie to our dad. And Joe's got this dream. I'm supposed to be king. I'm supposed to be in charge. How does this fit with the promise of God's word that he's given to me already? He gets sold by the Ishmaelites. He gets sold into Potiphar's house. He gets falsely accused by a woman who tries to sleep with him. What's he do? He says, how can I sin against God? 
and sleep with you. And she goes, let's unjustly accuse him. He goes to prison. He has two people show up in his life who both had dreams. Now, if you were Joseph and I was Joseph, what would you say? I had dreams before. They don't work. Take it from me. And he has a baker and he has the king's wine. So I can't remember what he's called, cupbearer. He says, you're going to die. You get back to your work. Don't forget me, please. Two years goes by. He gets forgotten. And all throughout the course of Joseph's life, you're watching this individual do good because he has a perspective that God is in charge of his times. He understands that God is doing something. Does it make sense to Joseph? No. Can he see what God is doing? No. He has a promise from God that helps uh, light his path all the way along the various and changing circumstances of his life until he's done. Then his brothers come. He gets exalted to Pharaoh's right hand because he interprets the dreams. He provides for his brothers and all that. And by the end of his life, his brothers come to him after his dad dies and they say, hey, don't, you know, essentially don't uh, kill us because dad said, please don't kill us. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Who is in charge of Joseph's times and life and seasons? God is. The story of Joseph is not a story of how uh, fundamentally about Potiphar's wife. That's a moment. The story of Joseph isn't about the Ishmaelite slave traders. That's a moment. That's not the point. The story isn't really about the coat of many colors. That's a moment, not the point. So that by the end of Joseph's story, you begin to string together moments that don't make sense into a cohesive whole that does. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Enjoy your life. Can you control the seasons? No. Can you control the times? No. What you can do is control your response to the changing seasons that are in your life. And what you should do, work hard, do good, trust God, let the seasons come as they may. Verse 13, 14, sorry. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Isn't that good news? God's never surprised with what is happening on earth. He never goes, oh man, they ate the apple. What am I gonna do now? It was perfect and they screwed it up. This is so comforting to me because for those of us who live our lives with this profit loss mentality, good season, bad season, good moment, bad moment, good relationship, bad relationship, we feel the, the crushing reality of circumstances we can't control come upon our lives, but that's not how it is with God. When God does something, See what Solomon says? It endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people, what? He fear him. How can you enjoy your life? Fear God, do good. How can you enjoy your work? Fear God, do good. God's in charge of the seasons, of the up and the down, just like he is in creation of the summer, fall, winter, Spring, summer, fall, winter, spring. He's in charge. 
He set it up like that. You can't control the various seasons that'll come into your life, but you can control how you relate to them based upon how you relate to God. See, this confidence that we have in the variability of the changing seasons is that God is in charge of doing things that can never be erased. There's no erosion in God's work. There's no depreciation in God's work. There's no loss over time in the things that God does. When God says, it's done, boom, it's done. No one can stop him. So that allows us to live with a sense of humility before God, that he is in charge and that we are not. Now, I've said that three times. You with me? He's in charge. We are not. Therefore, do good, work hard, fear God. Now, look at verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. We saw that in chapter 1 already, haven't we? There's nothing new under the sun. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. Back in chapter 1, verse 9. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Which is such a weird verse. Commentators have a, a really tricky time with this phrase that closes Solomon's first philosophical musing when it comes to the times. What does it mean that God seeks what has been driven away? Now, in the context of what he's been saying, he's talked about the variability of the seasons, right? And he's talked about how we have this inherent awareness in our lives that we're built for eternity, and we long to make sense of our lives. And when Solomon says God seeks what has been driven away, it's literally God seeks what has been pursued. Here's what I think it means in context here. It means that for you to get an understanding of what God is doing in your life requires eternity. It requires one day you will die, your heart will stop, the brain waves will cease, and you will step into eternity. And if you know and love Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, you will step into a reality where he and you will speak and every single moment of your life that you long to make sense of during your time on earth will finally and ultimately be made, uh, be made understandable to you because of eternity. And you will marvel at the purposes of God over the course of your life. You will be amazed that the seasons that made no sense to you make perfect sense to God. And God seeks those bewildering seasons and brings them into the fore so that we can understand them only in the light of eternity. You with me? That without a relationship with God, without our anchor in eternity, with the one that Isaiah says, with the one who inhabits eternity, our lives will make no sense. And this longing in our hearts, we will not be able to understand. That means that when you step into eternity for the first moment, you will recognize that God doesn't waste a moment. There is no accidental lost season with God. That everything for God is a part of his divine plan and divine work from beginning to end in your life. And you can trust his hand in that. Now, 
Here's the second philosophical musing of Solomon that highlights the second subjective experience that we have in our life and heart. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. This feels like a strange turn. But if you think on this reality, that God is going to seek the seasons that made no sense to you, then inevitably you're going to ask a very, very important question. You're going to ask the question, what about, Steve, not just the seasons that were bewildering to me. What about the seasons where there was pain? What about the seasons where I experienced hatred or anger or injustice? What about the seasons where I felt great pain during my course of life on earth? Joseph, what about brothers who hate you? What about broken families? What about instances of abuse? How is it he's made everything beautiful in its time when there's so much pain on earth? And Solomon now turns to that and he says, I, under the sun in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. How do you think man is doing at governing, governing himself? Great? We doing great down here? God, we got it? And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon probably is referring to the courts of his day that make decisions. And he recognizes that in the places of life where there ought to be people who are upright, that there's wickedness. In the places in life where there ought to be justice and righteousness, which the Psalms say are the foundation of God's throne. That God himself loves righteousness and loves justice. And Solomon looks out into life under the heavens, life under the sun. He said, there are places where I know there ought to be right and there is only wickedness. There's places of injustice and wickedness and brokenness in life under the sun. And it ought to be different. You ever feel that? You ever have that weight in your chest that it should not be like this? I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now he continues referencing the time. You see that? There's time in the beginning, there's time in the middle, and now there's time when it comes to this subjective reality we have in our hearts, this longing in our chest for there to be justice and righteousness, for things to be set right. And Solomon acknowledges that the one who inhabits eternity can not only make sense of the bewildering seasons, but the one who inhabits eternity will call all men to account one day. See, we live life under the sun wanting our lives to have purpose and meaning and to make sense. We also live our lives under the sun wanting there to be vindication, don't we? We want the bad guys to lose and the good guys to win. We want equality rather than bigotry. We want justice rather than injustice. We feel that intuitively in our life under the sun. That there's an ache in our chest that it not ought to be that way. And Solomon says, God will. Now, we've took 
that term, the everlasting God. God has said eternity in our hearts. And now we've taken God, and God in this passage has been the one who uh, has given, put eternity in our hearts. God is the one whom we must fear. And now we look at God's future activity. You see that? Solomon looks at life under the sun, and he says, God will do something someday. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. In context, what is the time for every matter? There's a time of judgment day coming. There's a time when the books will be open, and men and women will be given to, to them according to what they have done. Solomon recognizes that. But this is another bewildering verse, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that themselves are like beasts. What's the test in context? Do you see that? The test is observing injustice. Now, here's why Solomon is incredibly disciplined in his philosophy. He removes the image of God in man idea because you can't see that but intuitively. And if you grant that you remove somebody from over the sun, if you take away the reality of a future judgment day, what does that do to the court system? What it does is eliminate any sense of true justice. Justice becomes how I define it. Justice becomes what I desire. And if I have the power and the ability to make justice happen according to my own standards then now might makes right and our world works on natural selection. Look, you already know this in instinctively, don't you? Why is it that the rich get off easy and the poor do not? Because of natural selection. Because the strong ones win and eat the weak ones. And without a, a vision, Christians, listen, without an acknowledgement that there is coming a day when God will judge every thought, word, and deed from the beginning of my life all the way to the end, and I am fully and ultimately accountable to God, I have no anchor for justice to be applied to mankind. None! Solomon says, take that away, you know what we are? Beasts. You ever watch the Nature Channel? And you see the tiger who's after the gazelle and we're all cheering for the gazelle. There's probably a couple of you that are like, get them, lion. You're hungry. You get yours. But most of us, generally speaking, we're all cheering for the gazelle to get away. We never want to see the gazelle eaten up and destroyed, do we? That's instinctive in us. We want the weak to be protected. We want the helpless not to be harmed. And Solomon says, you take away the idea of future judgment. You know what it reveals about us? That we are beasts. You know what Genesis, um, one more thing on this. Genesis 4. You know what happens in Genesis 4 after the sin in the garden? It's the story of two sons. You know the story? Cain and the story of Abel. Cain and Abel go to worship God. Cain has a bad day. He's mad he doesn't get the right sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Cain gets mad. Cain kills his brother. God comes in to have a conversation with Cain. And he says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground for justice. Who do you think you are? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. What are the things that crouch at your door? 
Are they kind, sweet little things? Or are they things with fangs and claws and fur? The image is Cain is becoming the beast within. He has no care for the image of God in man. Beasts all the way through the Old Testament are spoken of in nations as those things with power but no conscience. And when you remove the infinite personal God and the image of God in man, what you are left with is power without conscience. Without a future judgment day, every single culture will de-evolve into the strong eat the weak. Morality is gone in favor of power. Are you encouraged yet? Do you see how disciplined Solomon is? Are you with me? He makes you face the reality of life from an atheistic worldview, or at least agnostic. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Verse 20, all go to the same place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. If there is no image of God in man, if there is no morality, if there is no one outside of our times, then mankind is reduced to beasts. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. You can't tell me. And I can't tell you. Because left alone with your senses, you look at the life and death on this planet, and without a word from the outside, you can't make sense of it, and you can't convince me to make sense of it either. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Do you see the questions he's asking? Now, if you're a Christian... And with the things that Solomon has talking, been talking about this morning, you have a beating heart right now that you're trying to keep your mouth shut because what you have is the remainder of your Bible that gives answers to the question marks of Solomon's life. And it gives answers from God's perspective, not man's. Who is the one who can make sense of our lives? The one who can draw all meaning out of seasons that make no sense to us, but when we step into eternity, we see the whole tapestry in front of us. That's only God. Who's the one that declares that man has dignity and man has meaning and man has worth? Well, it's God. You can't get that down here. You need specific revelation you need truth from the outside to tell you what your heart feels. Right? You with me? You need someone to speak and to affirm the fact that there is eternity in my heart. There's this desire for justice that cannot be resolved with just what I see in life under the sun. I need the word of God. I need God to speak. See, Solomon doesn't have that revelation here. But when we step into the New Testament and we read Revelation chapter 20, Christians know that there's coming a day where judgment will fall on either Christ or it will fall on me. 
that there's coming a time when one who has eyes like the flame of fire will evaluate my life from beginning to end and I will either find that he is my shelter and he is my hope and he is my salvation or he is my judge. And that the injustices that I have been experiencing in life will ultimately and finally make sense in light of the one who one day will judge it all. But second, when we look to the New Testament and we look to the person of Christ, we see the fact that the God-man was crucified for the sinners. That of all people, Jesus lived a perfect life, right? He should have gotten every single possible benefit out of life, but he went to the cross for you and for me. He went to the cross and lost it all. He became nothing. He was destroyed. He was demolished. That our sin might be forgiven. That we might step into life now confident that our emotions don't need to rise on on the highs and the lows of the circumstances we face. But that God has given to us confidence that he is the propitiation for our sins, but not just ours, the whole world. He has taken wrath away so that now I can live my life with purpose and design, confident that what God is doing endures forever and that you and I can join our lives to what God is doing forever. We can join our lives in the church to be with one another and stoke the fires of our confidence of his love for us as we open our homes, as we serve fifth graders as we share the gospel with our neighbors, that our lives now don't have to be this anchorless, purposeless, you know, moving on, I can't figure the words. You know what I'm saying? On the thing of the tides, with the go and the up and the down. It doesn't have to do that. Because he loves you, he died for you, he takes away the threat and the fear of death so that now you can live a life where you join your moments to the eternal God and do work that endures forever. Why in the world would we do anything else? Why in the world would we not, with confidence, make disciples saying, God, I want to live my life with the purpose that you have designed it for. God, I want to contribute with what I have so that we might find freedom and that you might do work in my life and in our church and in our city that lasts forever. Because if Jesus hasn't been raised from that, here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? What do I gain? His point is nothing. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You shouldn't go fight animals. You should get a steak. And then at the end of the, of the passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Because when Jesus rises from the dead, we are invited to participate in that resurrection life. And then he says, uh, Always be bounding the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Why do we talk about in our church taking your next step with Jesus? Because I want your life to count. I want my life to count. I want to join my life to things that can support the weight of my life. That involves getting around people, investing in people, trusting that God is doing a work in you and in me and in the people that you look around in this room and say, oh God, would you pour us out? Would you use us? that people might know you, would you do something with my simple and faithful obedience that lasts and endures forever for your glory? See, all of that comes back to Jesus. 
we can find freedom and hope that our sins are forgiven and that we can find a purpose for our lives that will last into eternity. Amen? Father, would you do that here? Father, would you make sense of the seasons that don't make sense to us? Would you make us turn and be more reverent, more aware that you are a God of sovereignty, that you are a God of providence, that nothing escapes your notice, that every single season of our lives, though it doesn't make sense to us often, makes sense in you. Father, if there's someone here today who's never heard that Jesus loves them, that Jesus has taken their sin upon himself, that he has broken the power of Satan and of sin and of death so that now we can live lives where we don't have to fear. Father, would you make us a church that stands for the dignity of, of all men because of the image of God in them? Would you give us the courage to say what you say about humans? Would we stand for life and for dignity and for justice and righteousness for we know that you love those things? And Father, would you make us a church that yearns to do your will, that desires to be faithful, that desires to submit all of our lives to you and that you would uh, pour us out for your namesake and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.